Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Finding Backcountry podcast. Coming at you from my basement on a nice uh, winter morning right here before, pretty soon before Christmas. And I've got Actually, speaking of that, I've got a Christmas present for you guys. I've got South Cox on the line. How you doing, South? Hey, you're great, man. It's good to talk to you. You ever been considered a Christmas present before? Uh, no. <laughs> well, you are to my listeners, I'm sure. All right. Oh, good deal. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's that time of year. It's kind of... Uh, Dude, it snuck up fast this year, didn't it? Yeah, well, it's already gone. I mean, I don't know yeah. if you're referring to last this last season's hunts or or the upcoming draws are already. Like, my brother and I yeah. were just on the phone uh, talking. You know, I'm a Wyoming resident now, and so they want to come hunt elk or whatever. And so, the man, the non-resident Wyoming elk applications – like January 1st opens, you know, his wife is even like, why are you, his wife, uh, my sister-in-law, why are you guys talking about this already? <laughs> it's it's yeah, open it's like in like barely, a week. <laughs> barely past hunting season. Are you talking about next year? Seriously, seriously. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Speaking of those, I'm going to cash in my elk points, I think this year for, uh, for Wyoming, I think I've got 11 or 12 of them, something like that. And I was talking to the guys over there at Born and Raised Outdoors on doing something, splitting points, because uh, <clears throat> they seem to know Wyoming pretty well. And I've got, you know, more than than is necessary at this point. Yeah. And yeah, they that... are poor in points. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like, um, man, I, I don't know. Are you... I don't want to get into details really, but yeah, if you're just going after like the general elk tag, it usually only takes, I think two or three, right. In Wyoming. <clears throat> yeah. I think they're putting in, I mean, I have no idea. Trent is, uh, is working on it and he's, he's, uh, been diving deep into it. Um, but I think we're putting in for some draw unit. I just, I have no idea. I'm in the to- totally in the dark on which yeah. one. Actually, I think Cody's got five or six points. So yeah. I think that between the three of us, we'll, you know, we'll end up with five or six points a piece that we'll be able to put in for something. I hope, I hope the day comes and I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm getting there where I have so many points in so many different States that I finally have to call up some, you know, at that time we'll be younger kids like you're doing and be like, okay, here's the deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've got 15 points. You guys line Uh this thing up and line, line me out. And then uh, you can use some of my points. Yeah. Yeah. I've got one fewer deer points in Wyoming than elk. So I, I can't remember if it's 10 or 11 deer, which is ridiculous, but they, you guys keep getting walloped by winter kill over there on that Western yeah. side. And <clears throat> one of these days I have to burn those points too. So otherwise yeah. it's just 50 bucks a year I'm burning. Man, and, do you, uh, do you sometimes wish that all States were just more like a New Mexico where there was, or Idaho where there was really no points and you just, 
applied every yeah. year. Do you... Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely is one of those things. I mean, for state like Colorado and Nevada are my two primary states that I hunt, and it's frustrating, you know, how Nevada's system works where um, you're you, never you guaranteed. Really, yeah, exactly. And it's always up to chance. And last year I didn't get a tag, and that was kind of a debacle. Actually, the way it worked out, I thought I was getting an elk tag in the same unit that I hunted the year, um, that I hunted last, no, well, yeah, in 2019, I thought I was going to get a landowner tag. So I ended up not putting in for the Nevada draw and then found out the day after the Nevada deadline closed that I wasn't going to get that tag, but the the guy that had, um, you know, my connection decided to keep it. (laughs) So (laughs) I ended up, I only ended up hunting two States last year. And, uh, so I was, you know, pretty sore about that, but I mean, that's the way it works out sometimes. You know, and like back in the day, quote unquote, when I was a kid, I mean, we only hunted one state. And so whether, you know, whether you drew your Nevada deer tag or not growing up, it wasn't the end of the world. It didn't, it didn't shatter your whole plans of your whole fall. But now when you get this deep into it, like we are, and you're applying in six or seven, eight different states, and then you can't plan on a hunt being drawn or not you know it can either you either plant over plan for hunts you think you're going to draw and then you don't which happened to me last year or you you know under plan and have a few too many easy to draw or over the counter tags lined up and then you accidentally quote unquote accidentally draw a tag and then you're you know then you're scrambling and it's just yeah Yeah. it's it's nice at least in those states you know either either don't have points or have points where you feel like you know, like, okay, I'm at the tipping point. I know I'm going to draw now. That's always nice, but right. Yeah. But yes. yeah, yeah. Being tag rich or tag poor, it's hard to balance it. <laughs> and it's a fine line too. Yeah. Um, speaking of Nevada real quick, I just saw your, uh, you just released that YouTube video from, uh, that was 18. two yeah that was two years ago yeah. man i yeah. i was watching it and i was like was that just last year but that's been two years i mean yep. not not two hunting seasons really but you know one and a half or whatever but right right um yeah that yeah. and, and that was i mean that that's an incredible video for anyone but for me um it was a little bit a little bit more special just because um we happened to meet you guys there at the trailhead but um yeah Man, incredible, incredible story. Do you want to just give a, the brief synopsis on that? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, so I've known Larry for, you know, since I was a teenager, and that's when I kind of first became acquainted with his videos. I met him at hunting shows, and I've actually hunted with him a couple of times before, but never on a backpack-type hunt. One was a pig hunt, and then one was uh, he um, let me hunt once uh, late-season blacktails with him up there in Oregon. And, uh, but he, his, his video, his open country mule deer video, which actually coincidentally was filmed in Nevada back in the late eighties, um, that I saw that like right after I graduated from high school and that inspired me to start mule deer hunting and, uh, really kind of triggered my, my passion for backpack hunting as well. And, um, so you know, obviously I've been mule deer hunter for, for decades now. And, and, uh, all of a sudden last so early 2018 out of the blue, I, I got um, a friend, mutual friend of mine and Larry's 
reached out to me and said, Hey, Larry, uh, I was talking to Larry the other day and, and, uh, he said, he's got a bunch of, you know, points for Nevada. And I suggested to him that you reach out to, to you and, and, uh, cause he hadn't been in there himself in decades. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I've been hunting, um, up in there quite a bit and had been fairly successful. And, and, uh, so to make a long story short, we end up splitting points like I was proposing to do with a born and raised outdoors guy. So we can't <laughs> round we and round we drawing. go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Full circle there. <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, we ended up putting in, we drew and, um, myself, Larry and the cameraman, um, went up, uh, in there, took llamas up in there. And, uh, unfortunately 2018 was a really dry year. The, the animals were dispersed differently and it was just, it was a tough year, you know, all, all told and not the year that you want to take, you know, your mentor in there. And I was pumping them up, telling them about all these bucks we we're going to see. And I mean, we ended up, they they seem like for the most part they're still there but they were just totally dispersed differently than uh what they had been and maybe not quite as many as normal but i mean the first the first uh canyon we got into um is my like my honey hole and and i you know i guarantee you uh, or i would have that i could have shown you you know 30 plus bucks in there and we saw um like two little dinks and so it was pretty humbling you know and uh larry i'm sure is going oh my goodness what did i get myself into this guy's a moron but uh we ended up moving camp and uh um got into you know a ridge another ridge that i'd hunted and it's unfortunate man that's it was super discouraging actually in 20 years of hunting up there i'd seen two other hunters you know on this ridge in 20 years and i saw i can't remember it was five or six guys come off of that in one afternoon when we had moved camp so yeah well was, and we, uh, we we were you and i you know you get service every so often up on those higher peaks or whatever and mm -hmm. i think you had messaged me halfway through the hunt because obviously we'd seen each other at the trailhead and you knew i was in there and hey yeah. how's it looking on your side and it was even worse you know we were yeah we were kind you of more, yeah, we're more, in it. more on a main trail system or whatever. And it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't any better. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But man, what a, what an experience huh? to just go back and, and, uh, kind of go full, like, like, well, I was just going to say full circle and, uh, mm -hmm. that's the actual title of the film it fits perfect. Uh, full circle is someone that, like you said, kind of got you into it. Yeah, yeah. So we we ended up being able to get Larry several stocks, which I was relieved, and and uh, he got to stock you know a few nice bucks, and but it just didn't come together um, you know on his end, and, and it got I got super lucky that it did come together for me. Um, you know, it was just you know it was a, a situation where um, it was you know typically my mule deer hunts are spot and stock and this one was like a spot stock ambush kind of <laughs> kind of deal and uh, uh what happened was we were walking out this ridge it was just shortly after first light and um <clears throat> the day before we'd been walking out the same ridge and on the what is it south side of the ridge we had seen a couple of bucks um coming up through the sagebrush really open sagebrush hillside and then they're crossing over the top of the ridge and bedding on the backside on the north face 
And uh, so I can't remember what happened. I think we just couldn't get, couldn't catch them the day before. And, and so this morning we just, we dropped over the north side of the ridge. So we had the ridge line between us and then just ran, you know, out the, to the end of this ridge. And it looked like this buck was going to come through this saddle and the ridge. So I had uh, Nick Liebengood, my cameraman, post up on the top of the ridge right above me. And he was about, I don't know, 100 yards above me. And then I ran down into the bottom of the, in my socks, <laughs> ran down in the bottom of my pants of on. saddle. Pants on. Yeah, yeah. Full pants on, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I posted up there and I waited for about five minutes. And all of a sudden I heard a rock you know, land behind me and I turned around and looked up the hill and Nick's frantically waving me back up the hill. The bucket apparently veered off and now was heading towards the top of the ridge as opposed to through the saddle. So I hustled back up to the top of the ridge and um, <clears throat> I was able to stay on the back side on that kind of north side of the ridge there and stay out of sight. But the buck was coming like almost right towards Nick and had him pinned down. So he couldn't do anything. And unfortunately there was a tree between he and I, so he wasn't able to film. Um, but luckily I had my GoPro on me. So I just turned my GoPro on and, and, uh, so I'm easing up to the crest of the ridge there and I can't see, you know, where the deer is. And all of a sudden I see antler tines. So I kind of squat down a little bit in the, and then is is funny behind you know looking at the buck back up the ridge line um larry had he had lagged a little bit behind us glass in another basin and then he was going to catch up to us um where we had you know first initially seen that deer from and so i i'm looking at the buck and i catch movement out beyond the buck and it's larry who has no idea of what's going on and he had you know found my backpack and waited there for a few minutes and got up and he was walking down the ridge towards us while this whole thing is unfolding. Luckily the buck is focused in the opposite direction. So he's kind of walking up behind the buck, but you know, maybe 250 yards or so beyond him. And uh, so the buck is kind of walking slowly in my direction and He's looking alternately looking at me and looking back at Nick and looking at me and looking at Nick's direction. And as the buck is walking towards me, he's, you know, gaining an elevation. And so meanwhile, I'm cowering and lowering in the sagebrush <laughs> with a, I'm with, a long, with a recurve or a longbow. Was. With a longbow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So he, when I first saw him, he's about 40 yards <clears throat> and he ended up walking into, <clears throat> Oh, probably 15 or excuse me, 25 yards of me. And then he stops and, uh, you know, I've got, I'm holding tension on the string the whole time. And, uh, and he's just ever so slightly quartering into me. Um, but you know, still plenty broadside enough for, to make a good shot. And I was like, man, you know, in my experience, he's not gonna, this isn't gonna, this isn't going to end well. He's going to turn and run right any minute now, once he kind of fulfills his curiosity. And so I decided, okay, if he takes one more step, I'm going to draw on him. And, uh, he took that step. And as he's, you know, kind of moving a little bit, I drew my bow and as my bottom limb comes back, it hits a sage bush behind me. And, uh, so it kind of halts my draw. And meanwhile, I've been holding the bow 
you know, tension on the string for a while. And so, and then, you know, the adrenaline, all this, man, my bow, I felt like I was shooting a 70 pound <laughs> long bow. And uh, so I got back as far to full draw as I could <clears throat> and cut the shot. And I heard a whop, you know, as he spun and, and then runs off, you know, the knob that he was on. So I stood up and kind of walked towards him. And then meanwhile, you know, I look out beyond him and Larry's, walking you know full fully in the open at this point walking down the hill right and uh, the buck is yeah the buck is running pell-mell right towards him (laughs) and uh larry stops because he sees this deer running and then uh i think he ran maybe you know i don't know probably less than 100 yards something like that and then kind of stops and does the drunk stagger and as he does (laughs) that he turns around i could see the blood spot on the other side ended up i shot him right through the heart so it was a perfect shot, and then he piles up right there, and got Larry got to watch the whole thing. So it was pretty cool. Well, and that <clears throat> you mentioned your camera guy not being able to really pick it up, but man, that's it's kind of like your signature that that last second like GoPro footage. Um, you know, I've watched enough of your films that you usually, you know, at least recently you've had that GoPro on, and that's yeah. it's just such a you know with a compound it's one thing, but with a stick bow it's it's just usually so much more intimate and that GoPro I think mm-hmm. was made for those, you know, yeah. 25, 30 yard or closer encounters, right. you know? And so it's really incredible footage, um, from a, from your perspective and those GoPros, I mean, you know, whatever, five or 10 years ago, they were marginal quality, but now, I mean, that's, it's almost as clear as, you know, it's really good yep. footage. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see, you know, my left arm from like the elbow down yeah. and the boat, the Shaking. riser, the bow, and the bow drawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It, it's pretty cool footage. You yeah. Know? Well, that's it would have awesome. Been awesome to have a second camera going. So we've got to cut back and forth, but I'm yeah. not going to complain. I mean, it turned out really well. You see the deer in the frame and, and all yeah. that. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was curious, was there anything hunting with Larry that you picked up or learned from him? um, while you were hunting with him? He's really patient. Um, which, you know, in, in a lot of instances wasn't working. Um, I found that, and I think he, you know, I mean, we'd certainly both learned from each other and I think I had learned a lot, you know, from him already, just from, you know, having watched, he he basically hunts in the same style he did on that video. I mean, he mm-hmm. didn't hold any secrets back when he put that video. Out. Incidentally, that's still available. It's uh, so he his production company back in the day was called Wilderness Sound Productions, and at some point he retired and sold that the whole catalog of his videos to Point Blank Hunting Calls, and they have it available on their website, Point Blank Hunting Calls, and it's now on DVD format, which uh, I was fortunate because I don't think anyone owns a VCR anymore. <laughs> and uh, so you can, it, yeah, for the people that even now still own a DVD player, that's uh, almost gone the way of the VCR. But uh, you can, it's like eight ninety nine. Um, highly recommend it. It's really entertaining. And, and uh, you know, he does a great job on it. So it shows some beautiful countries and, big bucks and it's filmed back in the eighties when the deer numbers were really high. So you get to see a lot of deer, you know, in the video and, and, uh, really it's a fun video to watch, but any case, he still uses, you know, a lot of the same or pretty much all the same tactics. And he's really, um, 
he really likes to, you know, bed the deer up and then wait till one o'clock or so two o'clock till those thermals are really ripping and then make a stock. But, you know, in my experience, those, uh, a lot of times those deer, uh, you know, they'll bed, um, initially in one spot and then they may, as that sun moves around, get up and move to a different yeah. spot. And, and I really like to, as soon as they're in a, in a spot that I think that I can make a stock on them, I'll go after it rather than, you yeah. know, waiting. So I might stock them. Geez, I've stocked them as early as, you know, seven, seven thirty in the morning when they first bedded because they were in a good spot. And at that point, the thermals are still kind of working their way out, but yeah. just kind of, you know, having spent 20 odd years there in the mountains, I get, you know, it's like, uh, a few years ago, I shot one that was bedded down low in a canyon, and it was on a north-facing slope, as I recall, and uh, kind of a northeast-facing slope. The sun was coming up, um, and it was hitting. It had just you know, cleared the ridge line on the far side, so it was just starting to light up that area where that buck was bedded, and I could feel the thermals where I was at the top of the ridge and they were pretty shifty, but I figured, okay, down there in the bottom of that Canyon, they're just going to have just started hitting and they're going to be starting to warm up. And I knew that, you know, the thermals that I was experiencing at the top of the Canyon were being influenced by the, the air in off the, the backside, which were still in the shade behind me, um, you know, on that uh, South facing slope. It hadn't been hit by the sun yet. And so I figured, okay, down there, those thermals are going to be weak, but they're going to be starting to come uphill. <clears throat> and, and the meanwhile, as that sun was coming up, I knew it was going to, you know, it was going to come up quick as far as the, the uh, speed it was going to start raising. And those deer were in some shadows that were going to disappear, you know, within an hour. And I figured, man, it's now or never. So I bombed off the top. I ended up being able to sneak down there and uh, being able to shoot, you know, really nice four by five that was bedded in the shadow of a dead snag. So, I mean, essentially it was the, the tree trunk mm -hmm. diameter shadow that this thing was bedded in. And so you can imagine as the sun rises, that's going to move pretty quickly. Um, and it only took me, I was less than 15 minutes off the top of the ridge to get down to them to make the, the shot happen. But sometimes yeah. you just have to be really aggressive. Well, and, uh, and in, in, in that country, you know, having hunted it for a, a lot shorter amount of time, but, um, I almost feel like it's a little bit of an anomaly because it's so wide open. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I get the impression that if you were in, you know, Colorado and maybe some jack pines and some really high willows, you know, they're probably more, you know, they're probably more, uh, uh, what's the word predictable with their, you know, they're yeah. in a bed and they're going to stay there for six hours and then they can get yeah. up when they want to eat basically. But in that country, because it's so open they're you know, they're constantly moving, you know, we, and we've right. seen the same thing. And that, that buck that I finally killed in there, it's, what has that been three years anyway? You know, I was running. I mean, the second that mm -hmm. that deer hit the bed, um, even though he was tucked in a pretty good little pocket under some cliffs, I was running down the backside. And like you said, I mean, 15 minutes, I was, you know, taking my boots off and popping up over the ridge behind him and it worked out. But yeah, they just, that country, man, you like, they're just up, down, up, down, moving, twisting, 
rearranging beds. Bigger bucks are kicking little bucks out of beds that they think they want, you know, back and forth. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there's a a lot to, you know, hunting, you know, one area and getting to know it and getting to know the habits of the deer and, and, uh, you know, there's a, I love seeing new country, but there's nothing like, you know, really having confidence of knowing an area um, and kind of knowing the local habits of the deer and, and where they tend to bed and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's my Achilles Hill is uh, what's next, you know, uh-huh. maybe this, <laughs> maybe this hunts better. Maybe this state's better. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Grass is always greener. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. Well, I cashed in, uh, I, here's a, a hunt. I don't think I've talked about on a podcast yet is my elk hunt from Nevada yeah. last year. And, uh, and it's kind of a, a sad, but, uh, learning opportunity tale in that I didn't do my research that I should have. Um, I had like 18 points and, um, I'll go ahead and, you know, which I normally do not do, um, is talk about the units that I put in for. Yeah. And I, there's two reasons. One is that, you know, usually I don't burn points on a unit that I don't want to go back and hunt, but I've never had this many points before either. And Nevada for elk almost becomes a once in a lifetime opportunity, at least for non-residents anyway, because, you know, once you get a tag, I think, I can't remember if it's five or seven years after you, if you fill your tag before you can even start applying again. Yeah. It used to be, it used to be five if you didn't harvest and 10 if you did. And now they just married it up so that it's average of seven, I think, no no matter what. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, now at 50 years old, I got to wait seven years. And then if I got to wait another 18 after that, you know, you can do the math. <laughs> it's 75 hey, years old. Larry, out there. Larry was, isn't he about that old? I mean, he was getting around yeah. up there. That yeah. was really impressive. So don't, don't no count kidding. yourself out. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I will start gathering points again when I'm, <laughs> when I'm uh, eligible. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, so anyway, um, so I'd been, you know, I'd always heard about the jarbage and it's my, my passion or my interest in the jarbage actually started for mule deer. And I considered putting in for, in fact, I did, I, I have in the past, um, on several occasions put in first choice for the jarbage and then second choice, you know, different unit. Uh, but in any case, I'd never drawn it for deer. And, uh, meanwhile, you know, as I'm building my elk points, I'm hearing about all these massive, you know, bulls, 350 to 400 class bulls. And I had a friend, uh, or have a friend that a fellow stick bow hunter. And he, um, he, uh, hunted that area for deer. I want to say it was like five or seven years ago. And, and he, is a principal, uh, or no, excuse me, is a kindergarten or was a kindergarten teacher before he retired. So he had all summer <clears throat> off and, uh, he had pack goats. So he spent like, I mean, I can't remember. He spent a long time there in the garbage one summer scouting for his deer hunt before he had to go back to work teaching. And he had told me he had seen something North of a hundred bulls and like half of them were three fifty or better. And two of them were over 400 and said one was like 415. And this guy's a measure for Pope and Young and he knows what he's talking about. So that really keyed my interest in that area. Um, well, unbeknownst to me and 
Um, and this is where my, you know, not doing my homework as far as calling the biologist, uh, shot myself in the foot. Apparently the last few years, um, you know, they've been over objective on, uh, harvest numbers. So they are rather over objective on animal numbers, not on harvest numbers. So the, they started, um, they started uh, increasing the rifle tags to cut the herd down. Well, of course, everyone, you know, no one's going out there wanting to shoot a spike or a, you know, <laughs> ranch antler, you know, raghorn or something. So the the upper age class of that um, herd <clears throat> just took a pounding. And so by the time, you know, I cash my points in, I draw it. Then I, you know, I, I called the biologist after I drew instead of before I put in, which was, my mistake there and, and let everyone learn from me burning 18 points on a unit. I shouldn't have, <clears throat> but, uh, so I talked to the biologist and, and she painted, you know, a picture that kind of tempered my expectations to a degree. Um, and, uh, but when I got up there and saw the reality of, you know, the, the class of animal that I thought, I thought I was still going to be hunting, you know, 350 class bulls, which, <clears throat> for a stick bow and for, you know, somebody of myself, um, for my trophy qualities, I, I would have been absolutely tickled pink to shoot something anywhere near that number. But, um, I think the biggest bull I saw was probably three and a quarter. And for a unit that you burned, you know, 18 years of putting in, that's not what that's I was depressing. expecting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then, I mean, I was, I was, uh, stunned by how rugged that country is up there um it is massive i mean massive and um i've been warned but you know it's like i i would imagine it's like somebody telling you how big the grand canyon is yeah. and then you walk up to the edge of the grand canyon and you go oh okay <laughs> this is what it massive is <clears throat> you know it's just a different a different uh level of how big that country is. And I'm looking at a topo map, you know, planning on this hunt and I'm kind of, and then I'm downloading on X and I'm, you know, marking spots on where I'm going to go. And man, I had just spots all over this map and I got in there and I think we hunted two, three canyons. And, uh, <clears throat> it was the, and to make things more challenging, the trailhead, we we actually parked higher than where we were hunting. So essentially, we drove to the top, which you know typically it's like, wow, you never get to do that. Usually, <laughs> you drive, you know, you park low, and then you got four thousand feet of elevation gain. Well, we drove up, parked, and then went down into these canyons, which. Um, then of course with an elk you're packing everything back up and uh you know we quickly realized with the heat um you know it was it was stinking hot in there and the canyon that we camped in we thought um the creek you know showed an active creek on the on the map and there was no it was a dry creek and so water we were having to from our campsite we were having to drop 1200 vertical feet to get water and uh, then it was, it was, you know, I don't know, two or three miles away to our water source, plus 1,200 vertical feet down. <clears throat> so it just logistically, it made things really challenging. And then opening weekend was a full moon. So you got the heat, you got the full moon. 
we were seeing animals and and there wasn't a shortage of elk we saw a ton of elk we saw one one day we saw 27 bulls um and we actually only ended up seeing one cow and one calf and i'm sure we saw north of a hundred bulls on that trip um but the problem was was that they were really only moving you know, out in the open, um, maybe for an hour at first light and then like an hour to hour and a half at the end of the day, they'd pop out. And because of how big the country was, you just didn't have enough time to get over to them before they, uh, you know, they headed into the timber. And, uh, so it was, it was really frustrating, really challenging. Of course, you know, the season, starts on august 16th there so there's you know no vocalization whatsoever so you're retiring you're relying entirely on glassing which you know it's kind of more up my speed there anyway but they're not like mule deer where they're dead in the open and you can yeah. you know plant a stock and all that so well in that hunt, really, is that the hunt that they changed the ending date early like august 31st too mm-hmm. yeah yeah so <clears throat> you know for for archery you really <laughs> there was a narrow window of time. Yeah. So it wasn't like I could wait, you know, and then go Which, the second half of the season. Or but, I'll, but I'll bet <clears throat> from my experience in Nevada, did you, did you get into some, uh, rut activity towards the very end of that? Or did you not catch it? Actually, at all? I killed my bull on day four. Oh, early. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we were seeing, uh, we were starting to see them shedding velvet, but yeah. almost all the bulls, you know, that we were seeing, not almost all, probably half of the bulls were in velvet, uh, which was pretty cool too. Cause I mean, when do you get a chance to hunt elk in velvet? Right. And the bull I ended up killing was in velvet, um, you know, spoiler alert, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll kind of go through the hunt. The first, uh, <clears throat> the first day I, I did get a stock, um, and I saw four bulls, one n- nice one, that one that I thought would be about 325. And uh, they were up further up this canyon, the head of this canyon. And so I ended up making a run at them and they had gone into some timber and uh, it looked like they were starting to mill around like they were going to bed. And so by the time I got over there, I was able to pick up one of the smaller bulls uh, bedded down. But the wind was um, just you know blowing from all points on the compass, which I found that was um, kind of standard procedure up there too was that the wind direction was just terrible um it it really swirled a lot so it made it really challenging uh and so i i kind of backed off for i don't know 45 minutes or something and was hoping that the wind would change you know and kind of become more consistent the thermals would and then i popped back up to check on them and they had all vacated and and uh so no dice there so the long you know hike back to camp there and then day two um we uh let's see we glassed up um some at the bottom of the canyon directly below me so i bombed you know it was like right at first light and i bombed down the bottom of the canyon there there was a nice bull right off the creek um a nice six point and so i i uh, literally ran down you know it's like a thousand vertical feet of loose shale and then got down in the bottom of the creek and hustled along the creek so that i had cover noise and meanwhile the bull had kind of lined out and was headed up the creek and i just couldn't catch him and he ended up disappearing into the timber so i backed off of him and then 
the third day we decided to drop into that same canyon, um, you know, basically and, and spike out on the ridge opposite of where we had camped at on the other side of the canyon. And that was going to give us um, closer access to a, a burn that we had seen some elk in. Um, and so we spiked, you know, we backpacked down there up the other side, spiked out and then uh, hiked up the ridge line closer to this burn. And that evening saw, I think it was, I can't remember if three or four bulls came out and I made a run at them. Um, but as I, you know, as soon as I left, I lost sight of them and I just kind of knew the area where I'd last seen them, but they worked their way down below where they had been when I spotted them. And I came in, you know, from the side hill, got directly above them. And of course now it's evening and the thermals are blowing down. So I blew them out without ever seeing them. Um, so really I thought, you know, that was going to be the end at that point. Uh, for that spot but the next morning we got up and we spotted them again higher up in that same burn and so we sat there and watched them as the sun came up they were on an east facing slope and and uh, so they're getting lit up by the sun and watched one bull bed down right on the edge of the the burnt timber where that met the uh the live timber and so i was getting ready to start to make a stalk on him and then he got up and, uh, you know, the other elk were filtering back into the trees at this point. I think there was seven, yeah, there were seven bulls in this group and <clears throat> they all went, you know, over the edge kind of from where we could see back into the live timber. <clears throat> and I figured that because that, you know, I'd watched that bull bed down, I figured that they weren't going to go very far before they're going to bed up. and with nothing, you know, to do, but a long day of just sitting around waiting till evening came, I figured, man, it's, you know, better than nothing. I'm just going to go ahead and make a run at him and, you know, get up to where I'd last seen that bull. And then hopefully just be able to sneak down the edge of the live timber there and just sneak and peek and still hunt, which I hate doing. But at this point there was really no alternative. Um, so I, I took off, got, and I decided not to bring my cameraman along because I figured <laughs> sneaking up on seven bulls in their beds when I had really limited idea of where they were going to be was going to be a futile effort already, but then put two people in there and, you know, your chances go down exponentially. So, uh, I, I took off, you know, with my GoPro and, and went up to the top of that burn and then was slipping down through there and, and, uh, had, you know, decent consistency for wind, at least, you know, finally. And uh, no sooner did I get up to the top and my, the wind is kind of carrying into um, the, the live timber from the burn, um, but a, a bit of an angle and, uh, you know, which was a, a decent like quartering towards me wind as I was going to drop down into this live timber where I thought they'd be. And, uh, <laughs> that I blew two bucks out was basically as soon as I got to the top and I'm figuring I'm within a hundred to 150 yards of where I thought the bulls were. And, uh, these all of a sudden these two bucks start snorting and crashing off, you know, down off, you know, away from me, um, and away from where the elk were, but they were making such a racket. I was like, Oh, 
goodness, man, there goes that, right? But I didn't hear anything blow out, any elk blow out. So I figured, okay, you know, using this uh, this adage that Dwight Shue, um, I read from one of Dwight Shue's books, if you don't see them leave, you got to pretend they're still there. Assume they're still and, there, yeah. Yep. So that's what I did. I just started slipping down the hill and, you know, take a few steps, stop and glass and take a few steps, stop and glass. And I did this for, I don't know, the better part of an hour. And then I spotted uh, legs and um, I saw, you know, a bull um, stand up out of his bed. And then uh, some glassing where he was. Oh, no. First, I heard um, a bull raking. And he was uh, knocking the velvet off his antlers. And it was turned out it was the biggest bull in that group. And I'm maybe 75 yards from him. And so I key off on him. And uh, he's just, you know, totally focused on stripping his velvet and was raking for probably 10 minutes. And during this time, I was able to close, I don't know, probably good 50 yards down to about 75 yards of him from where I had first seen him. And as I'm um, moving in on him, then uh, I'm still watching, you know, all around me because I know that there's more bulls in there. And then off to my left, um, at, you know, maybe a 30 degree angle from where that big bull was, I, I saw a bull stand up out of his bed and then I'm glassing and I realized there's three bulls over where he's at. And that it's going to be a better approach um, uh, trying to slip in on those three bulls. Plus, um, you know, continuing to move on that big bull, then I'm going to expose myself. So, um, you know, to the, to the other three. So I knew that, you know, really what I wanted, obviously, was that big bull. But it was just a no-go with the way that those three were bedded. So I switched my focus and started moving on those guys. And meanwhile, um, so there's two smaller ones that were in that group and then one, you know, pretty good six point that was in there. And as I'm moving, uh, slipping in on those three, the two smaller ones get up and they kind of wander down the hill a little lower, maybe 20, 25, 30 yards or so below that six point that was left. The six point stands up turns around and beds back down facing the other way. So now it's like, Oh boy, this is going <laughs> to really come together here. And uh, meanwhile, the two smaller bulls move down the hill, then they kind of start sparring and, uh, and then even that, better. <laughs> yep. Yep. Nice distraction. And all of a sudden one of the bigger bulls comes running into where the two smaller ones are sparring and kind of explodes that group. So now it's like all the elk are up on their feet and it's kind of pandemonium down there. At first I thought that one of them winded me or something, but then I realized that it was just, you know, kind of natural elk behavior and them kind of establishing their pecking order. So I'm uh, now, you know, that six point um, I'm, I'm still kind of focused on him the, the highest one up and um, I'm moving down in on him. And then I look down the hill and one of those in that group that it all exploded has started working his way um, up in the, in my slightly in my direction and below me about uh, 30, 35 yards. There's a, a cluster of trees with a, a whole bunch of beds in there. So I was like, oh man, he's coming up to the right below me to those beds. So I figured I'm gonna try and slip down there. So I abandoned my stock on that six point to the left 
and the bull that's coming up towards me is a is a nice six point not the biggest one of the group but a nice bull and uh so i'm starting to slip down to that that little clump of trees there where the beds are which i'm assuming is where these elk are headed towards and now all of the other bulls have started filtering through the trees and are following that lead um that lead bull so I'm trying to keep an eye on all these bulls as I'm moving my way down towards the, uh, this little clump of trees and, you know, they're shifting position and moving and all this. And I could still see out of my peripheral vision, this bull, you know, coming up and then I spot the big one. And by this time I'd gotten down to that clump of trees where I thought they were going to bed and then realize that they were going to actually pass by me, um, that big bull comes by at about 40, 45 yards, and which is a little further than I'd like to shoot. Meanwhile, that the lead bull, um, the one I'd originally seen, I know that in you know 30 seconds or something, I'm gonna he's gonna be back into the open and I'm gonna be able to get a shot at maybe 25 or 30 yards at him. So, you know, I want to be greedy and, and shoot the <laughs> shoot at or shoot or shoot at the biggest one. But it's like, man, this hunt, I knew I was going to get limited opportunities. And I figured that I had probably as good of an opportunity, you know, as I could hope to get at that, that lead bull. And so I, uh, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to pass the shot at the biggest bull and I'm just going to focus on that lead bull and try and get an opportunity to him. And while he was out of sight, I could move a few yards closer so that I could get my shot probably closer to 25 than to 30. So I did that. I took a few more steps and then that bull stepped out in the open and uh, just like, okay, don't look at, you know, antlers, just focus on my spot. He's kind of steep quartering. And he looks back at me and kind of looks in my direction. And I you know, had my shaggy hat on, face camo, fully on. And I, um, I, I got my bow up and I'm ready to draw, but I don't, you know, don't want to move while he's looking my way. And so he probably looks in my direction for 45 seconds. And I can tell he's kind of getting like, something's going on here that I don't really care for, but I don't know where or what it is. And then he turns and looks directly away from me and his, you know, his ears are up and he's looking around. And so I draw back and shot. And then uh, I saw my fletching hit him in the side, you know, good quartering way angle. And then that whole hillside just erupted (laughs) and uh, it was pandemonium, you know, elk running everywhere. So uh, I, you know, back out and I, I didn't have my pack with me. I just, uh, you know, basically brought my boots and, and, uh, you know, stuff up. And so I hiked back down, meet uh, my cameraman. And then another guy, a photographer from Sitka, Jay Byers had come along with us. And so I told him, I said, man, I I hit one and, and I, you know, I made a good shot on him. He's going to be down by the time we get back up there. It's not, you know, already, you know, down by the time I even turned around and got my boots on. So uh, we we went back, grabbed our spike camp, moved it further up the canyon, closer to that burn, and then then I uh, walked back up there, got on the on the trail and couldn't really find any blood in the beginning. We just were following hoof tracks and then finally we picked up a 
few spots of blood and and then uh you know we're head down looking and and uh all of a sudden jake my cameraman goes ah, there he is and he was piled up and we walked over there and i was like dumbstruck because I had shot like this really nice six point bull and I walked up on him and he was some funky five point. And somehow while I was stalking these bulls, what they had switched positions and another bull had moved into the lead and I didn't notice it and ended up shooting this kind of really funky horned five point bull instead of this, you know, what I thought was a big six. And yeah. that, <laughs> so that big like, six caught your movement and was like, played it cool and was like hey uh uh-huh. hey yep. john why, little buddy, why don't you go ahead. Why, yeah why don't you lead today yeah really you think so yeah yeah why don't you go yep. ahead <laughs> yeah so that was like that was a major i mean i wasn't i wasn't really so much disappointed as it was just dumbstruck how did, yeah, how how did that happen. yeah 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 because yeah. i was still totally elated i mean the further i got into this hunt the more i realized that I mean, when you're hunting with a stick bow, the odds are stacked against you already. But with, you know, the full moon, with the fact that the animals, you only had, you know, basically an hour at each end of the day to hunt them. Um, I just was like, man, this is 18 years. I'm, I'm going to end up eating my tag. And uh, I, I just, I had little hope, you know, not that I was giving up by any stretch, but it, I just realized, man, this is going to be a lot tougher of a hunt than I yeah. thought it was going to be. So I felt pretty accomplished being able to, uh, you know, being able to notch my tag there in the end. Um, but it <laughs> certainly didn't play out the way I thought it was going to at the beginning of the stock. Do you, um, you're pre- predominantly mule deer. Do you change your setup at all for elk? And then also just maybe give a brief, uh, summary of your setup, your, like your arrow sure. setup and everything. Yeah, so I, I shoot the same setup no matter what I'm doing, unless I'm doing like a late season whitetail hunt where I'm going to be sitting in a tree stand. It's going to be really cold, and you, you know you get your muscles get colder and stiffer, and then it gets a lot harder to draw a bow that you can comfortably draw. You know, earlier in the season when the temperatures are warmer, um, then I'll I'll drop draw weight on a on a hunt <clears throat> a hunt like that. Same but, same arrow setup though for that as well. Um, no, I think, I mean, basically you, with you dropping weight, you're going to have to change your arrow spine. So your arrow setup is going to change. I would still shoot the same broadhead. I'm shooting a three blade Valkyrie broadhead. That's a really long, you know, cut Mm -hmm. ratio. It's got that three to one cut ratio. So the broadhead itself is, you know, approximately three inches long. And then the diameter is uh, about an inch. And so you have, um, a long, steep blade angle, which is going to make penetration, um, you know, a lot easier. Right. And it's got a, it's a cut to the tip broadhead. So with traditional, you know, archery equipment, you are shooting a much lower energy setup. And so you need to have, you know, rather than having like a chisel point or a cone point broadhead, which is going to have a lot more resistance breaking through the yeah. skin. Yeah. Yeah, then you want a blade that goes all the way to the tip of the broadhead. Um, do you uh, and do you increase arrow weight when you drop your poundage like that to kind of offset that, or do you? Yeah, not worry? I yeah. mean, just from switching from a compound. I mean, I shot a 400 grain arrow when I shot a compound, and was shooting you know 75 pounds, and and I uh, had 
very seldom did I have penetration issues. And um, I was in that speed craze, you know, back in the day when I was shooting a compound. And, and it was psychologically really challenging for me when I switched to shooting a stick bow exclusively to also, you know, to not have that same mentality. And it took me a long time um, and some penetration problems before I bought in on the heavy arrow thing. And uh, so <clears throat> now I'm shooting you know, 565 grain arrow, um, shooting about 52 pounds with my recurve, uh, 27 and a half, um, inch draw length. And, uh, I'm shooting a lot of weight forward. I'm shooting, a um, gold tip kinetic shaft, which is a really light grains per inch so that I'm able to shoot a heavy FOC. I'm shooting a 250 grain point up front. Plus, uh, I think my adapter is like 75 grains. So, you know, that adds your, you know, north of 300 grains in the front end of your arrow there. And, uh, I've had really good luck. I got, um, you know, quartering away on that elk. I, I think I hit the offside elbow, um, which stopped it, but that's a lot of penetration on an elk. And, uh, I haven't had any penetration issues with that setup. Um, the last bull that I shot, uh, you know, I got two holes on him you know, on the elk that I shot before that, uh, as well. So, you know, both, you know, I shoot the exact same setup on mule deer. It's, you know, one that I'm comfortable with and, and, uh, you know, I know I can get a really good penetration with. Yeah. Well, and it's, <clears throat> I, I guess it's, it's, uh, you know, when you're changing your weight setup on an arrow with a trad setup, you're in essence, you're changing your pins all of a sudden, you know, and it's, yep. it changes your gapping and your drop on your yep. arrows. And so it completely <clears throat> throws off your whole calibration from what you've worked on all summer. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, one other question I had, you were, you mentioned spiking out on that elk hunt and uh, you know, it's something that I've always it's like one of those things I've always been like, yeah, I should, you know, if, if I get in the right situation, I should plan like to spike out so that I can cover a bunch more country or that I don't have to make a big hike or whatever. And I, and yet I've never really, you know, actually got in, set up a base camp and then spiked out from there very often. And I know that I think, you know, a lot of your hunts, it seems like you do that when I'm just curious, like when you pull the trigger and say, okay, this is time to go spike out and move to a little separate side camp and you know what that mentality is for you of why you, why you spike out. Sure. So I used to do it all the time when I was, um, when I was hunting, you know, when I first started kind of when I was hunting mule deer there in Nevada, I had, I mean, that was the way that I hunted, even in Colorado, I would do it where we'd backpack in, we'd set up a base camp. Um, and then I would have like a, you know, I have a tent where I'd throw all my gear into it and half my, typically half my food. So I usually, I would break my, um, my, uh, my hunt up or break it in half. So if I had eight days, I'd bring four days worth of food. If it's 10 days, I'd bring five days worth of food. And then I would, hunt all day with my camp on my back and then just i'd be able to cover a ton of ground and then wherever i ended up that night then i'd kick out a deer bed or or whatever and i'd spend the night there and then i'd be you know hunting fresh country every day and that's a really efficient way to hunt if you have um you know an expansive area you know if you're hunting one deer and 
you know, and you can set your base camp up relatively close. There's no need or right. reason to do that. Or if you're hunting, you know, one basin that typically holds, you know, good deer numbers and you're just waiting for that one opportunity that there's also no reason to do that. But if you have an area that, you know, has good deer numbers um, scattered throughout it, then it really is a really good, efficient way to hunt. Um, and, you know, you can cover a lot of country. You can be hunting fresh animals every day. Um, and then, so the, I, I think there's like three variations really on, on, on bivouac hunting or spike camp hunting, you know, backpack hunting, I should say. So there's, you go in, you set up your base camp, you're hunting, you know, from your base camp and you're hunting a really localized area around there. And then there would be the next step, which I haven't discussed. And that would be, let's say, you know, you're hunting from your base camp and then you glass up some animals that you just can't get to, um, you know, say, you know, you're spotting them at first light and, but they're too far away for to be able to make a move on before they like this elk hunt, for instance, where I couldn't get to them before they had gone into the timber and bedded. Um, and so it becomes inefficient or ineffective in that manner. So then at that point, then you do a spike camp where you essentially create a smaller base camp away from your base camp. And then you're able to have another hub of an area that you can hunt out of that spike camp. And that would be different than carrying your bivouac camp with you, Every you know, day. all day yeah. and then moving around constantly. And so on that elk hunt, that's what we did is we just spike camped away from our base camp rather than actually doing like a bivy hunt. Um, well, so and it, you it, know, kind of three different scenarios there. Yeah. And it's, it seems like to me, as you were saying that, um, you know, in my mind, it was like, you know, you mentioned hunting one deer and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't know, you know, especially now that you hunt with a stick bow, you don't, you don't make a ton of like scouting trips in the summer trying yeah. to target one deer, right? I mean, you're like, like you're, you're hunting units that you've hunted your whole life. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you're, you're probably not. And so in that case, you know, A, you're not targeting a deer. B, you're not. And of course you're going to kill, you know, the biggest deer you can, you can have the opportunity at, but you're really just up there for the best opportunity. And so covering ground like that for, for you makes a ton of sense, you know, bivying out and being able to just see, you know, dozens of basins maybe, or whatever is, is a really big, you know, it's a real big advantage for you because you're not after necessarily the biggest deer. You're after the biggest deer that's in the best situation. Right. Yeah, precisely. I mean, actually I've never once in my life <clears throat> done a scouting trip from mule deer. Really? Um, yeah, which is, it's sad, <laughs> but it's one of those things where, I mean, I'm no different than the rest of everybody else where, you know, I have limited, um, you know, limited time off. And so I try to, I mean, I don't even go in a day or two early. I usually, I, I did this year. I went in one day early into Colorado where I hunt, but it was, it was a defensive tactic because I didn't want to be at the trailhead and see other people. And, uh, so I decided to go in an extra day early to get off the, uh, you know, off the trailhead before other potential other hunters came in and saw me and then tagged along and followed me in. Mm -hmm. Um, but usually I hike in the day before the opener so that, you know, I'm setting up camp on opening or the evening before openers that are maximizing 
<clears throat> my days off, my time in the field to be able to be hunting the whole time. Um, and that's worked really well for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I think going into, if you're going to start exploring a new area, if you have the luxury of being able to, um, you know, take a long weekend for scouting or whatever, then I think that's really smart. Um, I'm not in any way dissuading people from doing that, but it's just the reality. <clears throat> I mean, I'm self-employed. If I wanted to be unemployed for a month and go scouting, <laughs> I could do that. It's like Tony, but, Tony Treat <clears throat> says, I, I can afford to be gone as for as much money as I want to lose. <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. So, you know, there's that balance. And so for me, I would rather, I would rather do a 10-day hunt a seven-day hunt and a three-day scouting trip. Do you ever um, do you ever see yourself transitioning? You know, and I don't know. You seem like a guy that might never retire because you just seem to love what you're doing, and you know, as long as you can do it. But you hear um, like Randy Omer on podcasts, and I mean that guy. He he literally, I think, will scout all summer and yeah. then hunt. You know, hunt for one day, and uh, he even, right. he even made the comment that if he had to choose, he would rather he would rather scout than hunt. Uh-huh. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe you'll yeah, transition there, there lies the difference between me and randy Olmer. <laughs> i'm hunting you know opportunities and he's hunting giant bucks well he yeah and, therein uh, lies the difference between randy Olmer and all of us you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. on a whole nother level yeah so i mean if i was if it was if i was hell-bent on killing the biggest buck on the mountain then obviously i would have to change my tactics because you know i might stumble into the biggest buck on the mountain while i'm hunting um, but it's not likely that in a week or 10 days that I'm going to run into, especially, you know, if you're hunting the whole time, you end up killing your deer on the second day of the hunt, you're not going to find the biggest buck on the mountain in two days. So that's, uh, you know, that definitely is a, a different mindset when you look at it from that, that angle, but I'm literally, you know, I'll be glass in a basin. And there'll be a 180 class buck that's like, dang, I'd love to shoot that deer. But then there's a 160 that's bedded in an opportunity that's like, oh, dude, that's a slam dunk, man. And I'm after that 160 right now before that 180 even beds down because I know that if I can get on that 160 and, you know, if I wait for that 180 to bed down and that 160 gets up and moves out of that area and that 180 beds in a different spot that is not conducive for a stock. And I may have just lost my best opportunity of the trip. Right. Yeah. It's such an, it's, it's such an interesting, uh, you know, perspective that I haven't thought about until now, but just the, <clears throat> the differences of the guys that I've had on the podcast, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you got, you know, a guy like you, who, like you said, I mean, a, you're hunting with a stick bow. And so that's, you know, just a little bit different standard usually. And, you know, you're just after that, that opportunity and then all the way the other end of the spectrum you know a guy like carter you know that i've had on Mm -hmm. and and that guy i mean he like he's more like an omer where he's right you know he's spending 30 40 days probably in the summer checking trail cameras looking for that one deer um and he you know he would almost rather have less hunting days and way more scouting days because he's after yeah. a certain target buck or whatever you yeah. want to call it. And, uh, Absolutely. And, it, and the valuable <laughs> thing there is it doesn't matter. It's not, you know, yeah. that's the great thing about hunting is, you know, there's no right and wrong necessarily. It's just right and wrong for what you want to accomplish, you know? It's absolutely. Just what I was going to say is that it really just depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to put 
you know, is to have a, a good experience hunting and put meat in the freezer and you're not as hung up on antler size than taking an approach like what I do. I mean, I, I've been blessed in that I've been able to fill my tags far more often than not. And if you took the route that those guys do, particularly with the stick bow, odds are you're going to be, have a lot of unfilled tags. Well, and, and uh, sorry, go ahead. No worries. I was just going to say, and, 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 you know, because it is for one, it's dang hard to find the biggest buck on the mountain. And then secondly, that those deer usually do not make very many mistakes <laughs> and they don't usually bed in a spot that you got a, you know, an opportunity to five or six yard shot, like, you know, say a, a 150 to 170 class buck might, if yeah. you've got a deer that's, you know, 190 200 205 like that those deer have been around for a minute and uh <laughs> they've learned that ah yeah that's not the best choice for a spot a mountain lion can sneak <laughs> up on me really easily right there yeah. so you know you're gonna you're gonna have a lot fewer opportunities when you're hunting one deer versus hunting you know a specific situation where you can get in close on a deer right well, and with uh, what I was going to say is with application season kind of coming around again, which is we were talking before we hit record is just crazy that, you know, there's applications that are already. Yeah. Um, do you think or would you recommend that <clears throat> guys take that into consideration? Because I almost feel like there's a lot of guys out there maybe, you know, as I'm thinking this through that I, guys, a lot of hunters out there um, who on the one hand, they're more like you. They're more just after an opportunity. Like if, if they're com being completely honest with themselves, you know, 160 inch four point is exactly what they're after, mm -hmm. but their application strategy almost doesn't <clears throat> reflect that. Does that make sense? Like they, they wait. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, <clears throat> there's, there just seems to be a lot of opportunity hunts out there, but then on the flip side, it doesn't mirror what guys, you know, real, uh, right. what they would what really be happy are. with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think that this, that application strategy needs to reflect what your goals are and you, you, you said it there, but if you're ever, I mean, let's face it. If there's a 160 or a 210, everybody wants that 210, right? right. Everybody even wants to be able to lay eyes on, you know, a giant buck. But if your goal is, if you'd be happy with shooting a 160, don't put in for units that are, you know, really high trophy quality, but low deer numbers because your opportunities are going to be a lot fewer. I would rather hunt, um, you know, a unit that has scads of 150 and 160 class bucks. And, you know, maybe the top end of the unit is 170 than to hunt a unit that is, you know, renowned for having giant bucks but the deer numbers are really low and you might be, you know, one to three days between deer sightings. Um, but when you do see a deer, it's going to be a big one. Well, you know what? I need opportunities almost daily in order for me to stack, start stacking the odds in my favor well, with my, with my equipment and my shooting style, or, you know, my hunting style. Yeah. And this is total bro science, but just based off, um, you know, some conversations that I had with, uh, some gentlemen that were 
it was the state of Utah, and just recently they're going through this voting process of, you know, the whole rigmarole of how they're, they're going to manage their units. And, you know, they've got some some units in Utah, southern Utah, that are, you know, you know they're either over-objective or they're under-objective or whatever. And I had the conversation with one of those guys um, that I had never heard, <clears throat> never really thought of this point before, and he, excuse me, <clears throat> he made the point that um, – you actually, it's really hard to have a unit that has extremely big bucks and a lot of bucks. And the, right, and the right. reason, you know, the reasoning, I think if I'm remembering this right, just off the top of my head was something like, you know, those bigger bucks, they push their weight around. And so they outcompete, you know, when you, when you, especially when you consider the winter time and the winter range, they are going to outcompete and, uh, you know, overpower uh, younger bucks and even does, um, for whatever they want. And so they, they suck up a lot of resource and a lot of energy, you know, goes into them to, because they're the king of the hill, so to speak. And so, you know, you picture like a unit, like I have never hunted the, um, uh, the Henry's, um, but it kind of comes to mind or maybe the strip and, you know, the strip might be an anomaly. There seems to be a lot of deer down there, but, um, you know, there's, there's not, you know, then on the flip side, some of these units in Colorado or Nevada or whatever that are, um, you know, you know, it, it, it kind of lines up is what I'm saying. Like mm-hmm. some of those units right. where there's a lot of deer and the, and the buck to doe ratio is high, um, you know, relatively high, the, the quality is not always, doesn't go hand in hand. And maybe, it, maybe it's because of that, but yeah, something to consider. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, it's, <clears throat> It's definitely, uh, um, you know, you need to put some thought into, you know, what you're putting in for or not. And, and I mean, a lot of times too, these units with higher deer numbers, but lower deer quality are going to be easier to draw. And so from that standpoint, I'd, you know, I'll take those where I can hunt them every year or every other year over a unit that I, it might be every five years, because again, it goes back to, particularly if you're a person that, you know, you don't live in the West, but you're traveling out to the West. And let's say you're back East, you're hunting whitetails and, but you you know, you really want to be a Western hunter. If you can hunt it, do that style of hunting more regularly, more frequently, you're going to learn a lot and it's going to help you become more successful. And also if you're able to learn an area, you're going to be more successful when that opportunity does happen, when, you know, you do have that, that opportunity for a stock or a shot, you're going to know what to do more. The more opportunity stocking opportunities you get, the more time you spent in that area, you're going to get to know the, the country. You're going to get to know where the beds are, what the deer habits are. You just, you're, you're putting the odds in your favor a lot more and if you're putting in for a unit that you can only hunt every, say, three to five years, you're not going to do as well yeah. when that happens as you are in a unit that you can hunt, say, every other year. Yeah, even, so if, even if the deer quality is better in there, you know, if we're assuming like a 170 or 180 buck is a big buck, you'll, you, like you mm-hmm. said, I mean, you know, that, that the unit in Nevada, I mean, I would argue that you could get there faster hunting that every single year, even though those bucks are, they're few and far between. But if you're hunting that every single year, um, you know, as opposed to some of the units that I grew up hunting in the South, uh, 
that you would only draw once every five, six, seven. My grandpa went 10 years once, um, you know, putting Ouch. in, yeah, putting in for his, in his home state for his little, you know, his little hunt that he'd grown up hunting his whole life. And, you know, and, and there's, there's definitely more 170, 180 bucks in that hunt, but it's like, you know, do the math there. You just waited yep. five to 10 years and then you've got to pull it off on one hunt. There's a ton of pressure. Whereas like you're saying, you go back every year, you know, you might not find them the first year or even the second year, but then all of a sudden the third year, you'll find where that pocket is and boom, you know, you're hunted every year. So, right. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. But that's awesome. Um, Real quick, you know, and, and not to switch gears completely, but you had mentioned pack goats um, earlier, um, uh -huh. and, and I'm I'm just I'm hoping to fit this in here at the end. But you've hunted with both. You've hunted with llamas and pack goats, and I'm always curious, just what guys' perspective are that have hunted with both. Because I've, you know, we're deep in the llama thing. I've only hunted with llamas, and so I'm just curious, kind of what your what your two cents is on that. Sure. I think it, you kind of, to, <clears throat> to some degree, you go down the Ford Chevy debate. <laughs> and I think that the guys with pack goats will probably be like pack goats or die. Right. And then the guys with llamas are like, what are you doing messing around with those little things? Right. Um, there's, there's, uh, some trade-offs that I see. And, and, um, you know, we, I, I've I've done two hunts with pack goats. <clears throat> One time we rented them, and uh, I think we rented six. And and in I don't remember why we went the pack goat route versus llamas, but we did. And uh, so this was ah, maybe five years ago, something like that. And um, they worked out pretty well for the most part. Um, we, uh, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the goats are more limited in the amount of weight they can carry. And depending on your, you know, body size and your goat, it could be 35 to 45 pounds in that range. Um, so obviously you're going to need more goats, um, because, you know, the, they're more limited in weight capacity versus a llama, you know, you might be 60 to 80 pounds, depending on the llama's size and their physical ability. Um, so the thing is, you know, the more goats, then the more personalities. And we ended up with one that, man, I almost turned it into a barbecue <laughs> partway through the trip. It was so obnoxious, man. And so with goats, you don't lead them. They just follow you along like a herd of dogs. And uh, so you don't, to some degree, have as much control. We actually found that um, that these goats, we end up, I think, leading one of them um, because – they weren't really bonded to us necessarily because we were renting them. And so, you know, if, if we took off and they wanted to stop and graze, then uh, they didn't really <laughs> care that much. So we ended up having to lead one and that worked out fine. You know, then the rest of them would follow along once you figure out which one that they would want to follow. Um, but one of them was just like a total jerk. He would tee off on, <laughs> on the other goats, um, particularly like there's two of them that he would tee off on uh, just he was trying to bully he was a younger pack goat and uh so he was just you know feeling his oats and um really it was a pretty foolish maneuver on his part because we just increasingly loaded him down with more and more weight to make him pay figuring that the more tired we got him then the less apt to uh 
you know, to act up that he would be. And, uh, and we moved around quite a bit on that hunt. So he got the opportunity to really have his weight increase, but <laughs> much to our dismay, it was a limited success there. He was pretty hell bent on being a terrorist. Um, and then it was, it was pretty funny on the, on the hike out, one of them in the goats, man, are smart. They're super smart. Um, but this one feigned injury at first we thought he was legit, right? So he starts hobbling on one leg, one front leg. And like, and we had just like packed up camp. We'd only gone less than half a mile and we were deep, man. We had, we had already hiked in 10 miles and then we moved back into the unit further, another five or six miles. And then we were going to come out a different trailhead. So I think we had like 14 miles that we had to hike that day. And all of a sudden we've got a lame goat. Right. And, uh, so we were pretty concerned about, you know, what we were going to do. And so we took all the weight off this goat and, uh, and then put it on, you know, dispersed it. So this is after you take all the time to weigh, you know, the panniers for six goats and disperse all the weight. Now, all of a sudden we got to take the weight off of one goat and disperse it onto the other ones. So now we got this goat with no weight on it, and now he's doing fine, right? So we go, I don't know, maybe half to three-quarters of a mile with him, and he looks like he's doing fine. And so we're like, okay, well, maybe we'll see now. You know, We'll take the weight put it back on him because we didn't want to – You know, 14 miles in, and now the other goats are having to carry the weight from this one goat. So we took all the weight, put it back onto him again, and then we start going down the trail, and sure enough, he starts limping again. And I was like, oh, man, you know, we're screwed. I hope this thing can make it to the trailhead. And then Wes, fortunately, so Wes Smith was hunting with us on this trip. And he goes, he goes, wait a second, man. That thing's limping on the other leg. And that little bastard was feigning injury and forgot which leg that he was supposedly injured on and now was limping on the other leg. And it's like, you little SOB, we're not going to. Take the so we just you know let him carry it all the way out, and then pretty soon after a while, he realized it wasn't going to get away with it, and uh, then he just straightened up his stride. Yeah. Like, yep, <laughs> <laughs> but you got to wonder, man. It's like, how many times as a pack rental goat had he figured that one out and yeah. got to a free ride out, right? <laughs> Good grief, I've never had a llama do that before. Yeah, that's a but, big difference. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a trick that these guys had pulled on us. Now, one of the other differences, um, between pack goats and pack llamas is that with the goats, um, you know, according to pack goat etiquette, you're supposed to keep them with you during the day, as opposed to staking them out, you know, like you do with llamas and then take off hunting. So, um, you know, we, we did that a couple of times and then we're like, this, this is uh, not, you know, they were butting each other as we're trying to be glassing and then they come up and saddle up next year and they're walking over my bow and it just was like, got to be a bit of a debacle. So we actually, we had a pretty good spot where we could safely, um, you know, uh, stake them out where there's no trees that they're going to wrap their lead ropes around or anything like that. So we actually staked our rental pack goats out and, 
and uh, I'll probably be blackballed from the pack goat community, <laughs> but that actually worked for us. And, and uh, some of them apparently will just ball and ball like they're getting gutted yeah. you know, <laughs> while they're still alive when you, if you leave them in camp, but um, ours, you know, didn't do that. And I mean, they're, they'll, they're characters though, man. They'll literally, if you leave your tent door open, they want to get in Walk your tent. Right in, yep. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So they're, uh, they're something else there. It, it was a pretty neat experience, but, um, we, uh, the reason why we didn't use them again was, um, the, uh, the warden for the unit that we were hunting in, there's some sheep, bighorn sheep in that unit. And he asked us not to use pack goats in there because they were concerned about, uh, you know, the goat spreading disease, which has since been refuted, um, you know, by, by, uh, the pack goat community. They have actually, um, I think gone to the U S forest service and, and had, because there were areas that were, you weren't allowed to bring pack goats in, but I think they successfully lobbied against that. Yeah. There's been no proven cases of any disease transmission from goats to wild sheep. We're, we're fighting that with the llamas too, you know, it, really? it's, oh yeah. Yeah. Multiple, multiple places, uh, trying to get, you know, just simple permits so that we can do, you know, guided trips down around home or whatever. And, uh, it's, huh. it's, I think it's just the fear of the unknown, you know, they don't uh-huh. know. And llamas are so new to a lot of these places that they just knee jerk reaction. They just say, no, we're not going to risk that. But you know, it's, it's even more so like with, you know, the goats and the sheep, I feel like are similar enough, you know, whatever it is, family right. genus, species, whatever, whatever line it is there. But the llamas, I mean, it's, there's definitely, I don't know of any cases where it's, so hopefully that doesn't, uh, you know, hopefully there's some education that can be poured into both goats and llamas and, and get it figured out. Cause it's, yeah, it's tough, but. Right. Right. But yeah, no, I mean, I've had, I've had really good luck with the llamas. I've had, you know, some that didn't pan out that made the, the trip miserable, you know, the one to lay down and and uh and all that but um you know it's it's uh tough you know as somebody that's wanting to get into you know llama packing um and wanting to become a llama pack owner you know that to understand that there are some llamas that are going to be you know going to perform well and if you think about it just from the standpoint of you know, a human and one person being athletic and having that mindset of, you know, actually enjoying a backpacking trip versus somebody who likes to sit around and watch TV and, and, uh, you know, eat potato chips or something, then there certainly are, in my experience, there's those differences in, you know, genetics and personality within llamas that, that you might, you know, you, as a, as a new llama packer, you might think, Oh, look, you know, here's a llama that I can get for 300 bucks and I can <laughs> buy a pack saddle and Hey, we're off to, off to the races. And, uh, and I've done that and, and, um, you know, I've gotten lucky sometimes and I've had some miserable experiences on others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've ran it from us with the llamas in the past yep. and, uh, and you know, it's, I, for the most part, it's worked out pretty well. You have had some, oh, uh, some, some good stories though. Is there, <laughs> is there one, one in particular yeah. that you want to wrap up with here? 
Yeah, we had a uh, a fun experience. It wasn't exactly fun. <laughs> and I and I'm I'm hearing this for literally the first time, even though it's been what however many months it's been. So I'm right. I'm on the edge of my seat here. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, a couple buddies of mine rented llamas from you this year, and uh, we were hunting together. And I had rented llamas from somebody else. And with llamas, I mean, it's funny with llamas how you know, even so there's a real pecking order with llamas. And if you bring a new llama into a group of llamas, then they basically, they mob the you know individual that has come into the group and they're, you know, they're clucking and their heads are held up high and they're, you know, doing the whole thing, trying to figure out if it's a boy or a girl, then, you know, can I mate this thing or, you know, where So it's kind of pandemonium and it's, even when you bring a llama, so you take a llama, you know, out of your herd of llamas, take them on a pack trip and then bring them back, you know, a, a day later, a week later or whatever. It's almost like this Reset. whole thing all over again. Yep. Yeah. Where it's like, dude, I've never seen you before. Who the heck are you? And they start this whole thing all over again. And you're standing, holding this lead rope of, um, of this llama while you're getting mobbed by all the other ones in the, in the pen. So we, uh, you know, my two buddies had made it into camp before my cameraman and I, so we come strolling into camp and they're out, you know, uh, out glassing for, uh, for deer. And we roll in, um, with our three llamas and they've got, um, the three llamas they rented from you and they had staked them all out. Um, so you know, and we had planned on staking ours out, out of sight of the other three so that there'd be no llama drama. And, uh, but unbeknownst to us, well, as I roll into camp, here's a, you know, I can see the two that are staked out. And of course, as soon as we pop up within view, then they lift their heads up and, you know, they, they, uh, trot out to the end of their, their lead rope there. And they're standing there, you know, ears erect, looking at these two llamas. Making and then noises, I see, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, clucking and and uh, doing the the llama cry <laughs> like this. <laughs> so uh, the, then I noticed that there's a, a llama up on the hill, and it doesn't you know it's it's not staked off, and the thing doesn't even have a halter on. And I was like, oh my goodness, oh, I gosh. can't believe my buddies let him loose and took the halter off. That was the dumbest thing ever. Because there's one thing, I mean. When you get a llama that you, you train them to lead, you know, so they'll follow along on a lead rope behind you. It's not that difficult to get, you know, them to that point, but it's a whole nother level to try to, to get your llama to where you can halter them. So typically you'll leave the halter on them and leave the lead rope attached to the halter. Cause, um, if you don't have them, you know, in a catch pen, which is usually like a 10 by 10, pen where you can corner them and then what generally speaking if you have a llama that is you know gotten relatively tame or somewhat tame then you can corner them they'll give up they'll let you clip the lead rope onto their halter but it's a whole nother level if they don't have a halter on and you're trying to catch them and then put the halter on them because llamas really don't like you messing with their head definitely their achilles hill yeah (laughs) yep Uh uh-huh so if you have a llama with no halter on and you have them in a catch pen it can be pretty challenging but if you have a llama that's out in a pasture and they don't have a halter on and you can't herd them into a catch pen 
Uh, good yeah. luck. And then if you have a halter, if you have a llama with no halter in and no fences, oh man, you got your work cut out for you. And the really the best way to catch them at that point is if you got some llama chow, you know, some grain, and then you can covertly, you know, slip the halter on them or get your arm around their neck. And then you're in for a little rodeo, you know, while you're clinging to their neck and, and, uh, you, you got to kind of wait till they're done jumping around and doing the bucking bronco. And, uh, so we roll into camp with our three llamas. They have their packs on, they're tired from the hike in and you're, I can't remember which llama it was of yours. That I, think was, it was Sky, that was, I think it was Sky. Okay. Yeah. So Sky comes tearing down off the hill. You know, we have our llama pack string and to make matters worse, I'm packing with, um, with a female which and a female and two gelded males and typically um you don't pack with a female and mix them in with males because you you know that can create a problem but now both of the males that i'm packing with are neutered so it's not a problem and uh but all three of yours are intact so now I have a loose llama who has charged my pack string and I'm still, I still have them all tied together. All of them still have their pack saddles on and, uh, they're all, you know, they're all like in a clump around me do It's a full on llama rodeo as your llama is, is sky is trying to, you know, sniff all these and trying to challenge them, trying to neck wrestle, trying to mount them. And I'm trying it's total pandemonium total llama tangle finally we are able to get sky away from the llamas long enough to be able to um get the pack saddles off get the panniers off and then uh we're you know keep having to shoo them away and then we bring our llamas up and get them all staked out so it's like and meanwhile i've been trying to catch them so that i can get you know a halter back on them but as soon as i get anywhere near them then he peels off far enough that I can't catch him. So it's like, okay, this is going to be a problem, but we go get ours all staked out. And then he kind of leaves off a little bit, kind of somewhat at least feigns that he's lost interest in them. And then he moves off. So we get all ours, you know, um, staked off. And then, uh, while actually while we're going to stake out the last one, he comes running back and assaults, the uh the the one closest to him so which happens to be a gelded male so he's like jumping on the back of the other one trying to mount him and as the other as the, the llama that staked out the the uh one that i've got i think his name was andy his nose tuxedo was flipping out you know he's getting raped by llama and uh and he's tied off so he can't do anything meanwhile sky's on his back i'm running over and then fortunately um you know the the lead rope to the stake is super tight because um tuxedo is gone to the end of his line there trying to get away from sky sky hooks his back leg over that rope so now he can't get away so as i run up to him um i'm uh, i'm able to get my arms around sky's neck which sky's a he's, he's a big boy you know, not a massive llama but he's pretty good size yeah. and he's young and he's full of piss and vinegar <laughs> so i'm holding on to his neck and i got a full-on rodeo going now he's 
you know, been able to finally now get his back leg over the uh, over the lead rope. And now I'm getting drug all around, <laughs> all around the well, pasture or the field there. You know, and I've, <clears throat> I've been in this situation myself, but I'm I'm a pretty big boy. I mean, I'm t- I'm yeah. too you know pushing 230, 240 and uh, right now, and I I mean, you know, most of these llamas they they don't double me in weight, but you know, I'm I'm getting pretty close. But for you, you're not. I mean, you're not quite that big, and so no, no, I was getting I was a rag doll, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew it was like, man, I got to hung, hang on because I figured I got super lucky being able to get onto him there. So I, um, meanwhile, I had my uh, my cameraman Jake is about your size, but I had him run down and get the halter and lead rope that this guy that Sky had shook off um, that was still tied to his stakeout, and I uh, I had him run down in there and get it while I was you know, getting drug all around the side of the mountain by sky. <laughs> so I had, uh, you know, and man, you should have heard the God awful cries coming from my uh, tuxedo wall <laughs> while he was getting mounted. Getting violated. I mean, it was a full on rape scene, but, uh, Fortunately, I was able to subdue Sky long enough that we were able to get a, a the lead rope on him and get him back to being staked off. Which, oh my God. As a uh, as a, a llama packer, it's a good idea to, um, and I've seen this happen. I've had this happen to me multiple times. Where what they'll do is they'll they'll like scratch the side of their faces on the ground. They'll rub their face on the ground, and yeah. it ends up unbuckling their halter. And that's what happened with him. And and so the the cure or the, the, uh, the way to uh, prevent that from happening is to take some uh, electrical tape or duct tape or something and tape around that loose the end, end of that strap where it comes yeah. out of the, the halter there. And, and then, uh, you know, you won't end up with that problem. Yeah. But, Cause, cause yeah, once they're, once that halter's on, it shouldn't come off, you know, at least yeah. while they're on a pack trip. So yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's funny, yeah. man. Like you, you say, uh, you know, the, the pack, the treats, you know, the, the pellets, they love the pellets and that, that yeah. definitely is the most reasonable way to catch a loose llama other For than, sure. other than introducing new llamas into their you know their red zone there and that man you you had the perfect bait there um to keep a you know a loose llama occupied holy cow what a story (laughs) yeah i actually had dating back to this is when i first had gotten into llama packing um almost 20 years ago i had a llama that got loose on me at night and took off and i actually i had gotten two llamas that had gotten loose and one of them so I was in Northern California and, uh, you know, at the top of this mountain and one, so I, I mean, I, they were gone. I had no idea where they were. And, uh, this was on a July, um, backpacking trip, 4th of July weekend. And I got one of them back, walked down off the mountain all the way to town. And I got that and I was a five hour drive from where, you know, this mountain range was that I was backpacking or llama packing in. I got one of them back like three weeks later and I got one back. I got a phone call from the forest service in October. No way. Um, that somebody had glassed up this llama in, you know, while they're deer hunting. And, um, so the one, you know, that walked to town, the person caught it and I was able to just get it back from them. Um, but the other one was loose and I uh, had uh, that one had also shook its halter 
And so what I did with that one is I just brought a, I drove all the way back up there, brought one llama with me, hiked in with that. And it was the same thing, you know, that as soon as that loose llama, I found them within like 10 minutes of when I got back up there. (laughs) And uh, typically like with pack goats, if you look for llamas really like to be at the highest point, um, they're like playing king of the mountain and they, so they like where they, you know, get into a high point where they can see around. And so I just hiked to the top of the ridge and spotted. And then as soon as that llama, um, the one that was loose spotted the one that I brought with me, it was full gallop back to, you know, <laughs> his buddy. And then he was so distracted by the other llama cause he had been by himself months, for, yeah. at this point. Yeah. Months on end. And so I was able to halter him without any problem. And oh. then I uh, just, you know, put him in a string and hiked him back. But that's awesome, man. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, pack animals. It's, it's always, in the, it's like the game within the game, right? It's like, there's always, yep. there's always going to uh-huh. be something. There's always, they something. definitely add another element to the hunt. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, man, I appreciate it, Sal. Thanks for uh, jumping on, spending your morning, uh, just telling hunting stories and, uh, yeah, man. I, you know, with you, it's easy. I want to give you credit for just being passionate about, you know, what you, what you do and what you're into. And, you know, um, it, it shows and it's, it is part of your business, but good for you for, you know, finding a way to, to incorporate your, your life, your career into your business. What, what do you, what do you have coming up with the uh, stalker stick bows? Anything new, cool happening? Yeah. So we're, um, we ran out of catalogs, uh, back in, I think it was like in October or something. So we're putting out a new catalog in January. And, uh, so you'll be able to go to my website, stalkerstickpost.com. And there's a request a catalog link where you just fill in the information there. Um, I've got a uh, new bow model coming out, um, a belly mounted recurve where the limbs mount on the, on the shooter side of the riser. What is, what That'll is the, be available? I was thinking about that. What is the advantage to that or what, why, why the design change on that? Sure. So, um, what that does is it essentially puts your, it basically builds, um, deflex into your riser. So if you were to kind of draw a line through, say, your limb bolts or through the throat of your grip, um, you know, if you were to, on, on a profile view of the bow, you drew a line through the throat of your grip on a traditionally um, back-mounted uh, recurve where you put the bolt, the limbs are bolted on the target side of the limb, then that the kind of that pivot point gets moved forward from the throat of the grip. Mm-hmm. So it's a little less stable from a, um, from a shooting standpoint. I see. You know, if you look at a, um, a riser, some of the risers, you know, depending on bow manufacturer are basically straight up and down where some will be more like a V shaped yep. and the more V shaped risers put the throat of the grip forward. And so as you draw the bow back, it basically, it, it, uh, it makes a more stable shooting platform. Yeah. Um, and, but the downside is, is that that's going to rob you of some performance because you're going to end up having to shoot a higher brace height. So there's a shorter power stroke, a shorter distance that arrow is getting pushed by the string. Yeah. Um, now with the, the, with a belly mounted bow, then you end up typically with the same thing. You, you do gain that more deflex kind of design with the riser. Um, but typically most belly mounted bows have a higher brace height 
but I, through a bunch of of trial and error, I was able to come up with um, designs for my longbow and recurve limbs that have a shorter brace height, therefore a longer power stroke, but still maintain that same kind of geometry where you're getting more of a, a deflex style riser. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, from a performance standpoint, my recurve limbs are as fast as my, um, you know, recurve limbs and my fastest uh, bow model on my back mounted limbs, gotcha. uh, back mounted risers. And uh, so, and then additionally, I've got um, some longbow limbs that are available in my Wolverine model now. I've had a lot of requests for those over the years. And I finally am now offering longbow reflex, deflex longbow limbs with that. Uh, Wolverine model, and then I've come up with another um, a shorter 15-inch ILF riser um, to complement my ILF risers. So, handful of new offerings, and uh, they're all available now, and they'll be featured in the catalog. And pretty soon, I'll have them up on my website. So awesome! Yeah, yeah, busy I've, year. I I love mine. I know I haven't hunted with it in uh you know in a while. I killed I killed that bull in Utah with it, and just uh. You know, it's, it's one of those, it just, it, it's not, it's not a lack of passion that I had for it. It's just, um, you know, you, what you learn when you start getting into these shooting with a, or hunting with the traditional bow is it's a, you know, it's, it's a whole nother level of full-time commitment yeah. to be good at it, you know, and it's, it's mm -hmm. the time commitment. And so, um, you know, not that I wasn't doing that before, but you just realize like, man, like if, if you're going to do this and do it, you know, ethically, um, it's a, it's basically an everyday commitment and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. which, which gives even more, um, you know, it's gives even more credibility to guys like you that, that are, that are down that road and are able to do it and, you know, commit the time and stuff. And I, I, I think I'll get back, you know, I'll, I'll commit to that, um, you know, again, but man, I love, I love that bow. Um, I think mine's the FXT uh, coyote. Yeah, jackal. Jackal, jackal. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was a dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, love it. And it's just there's something about it, you know. I, I mean, it has nothing to do with the trad life or the craze or whatever's going on right sure. now. You know, Snyder's got a bunch of people riled up and stuff like that. It's just, it's just a different level of of uh, commitment. And man, it's it's so much fun when you're tucked in tight with those anything you know uh, mostly bulls for me but it's just if if you're looking for that next level adventure and you've got you know you want to commit to that man it's it's the way to go so. yeah it's been uh it's really been fun and rewarding for me i've been <clears throat> been having a great time doing it and um <clears throat> i mean the the fortunate thing for me too is is uh you know as a woodworker that's about equal in, in passion as as bow hunting. And so to, for me to be able to build them and, uh, you know, it's all of a sudden becomes a year round thing for me, um, as opposed to just actually being able to hunt with them. Yeah. Well, it, it shows in your work, man. So keep it up. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. No problem. Thanks for coming on South. If you guys have any Absolutely. questions, you can get him uh stalker stick bows, something or another on Instagram. I can't remember the exact handle, but yeah, it's a stalker stick, bows. stalker yeah. stick bows. Yep. And, uh, I think you spend a lot of your time there. Otherwise, uh, you know, you can always send, send emails to me, uh, you know, finding backcountry at Gmail and, and I'll pass them on or whatever. So appreciate it. Sure thing, man. Kay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Have a good one. All right. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding backcountry podcast.
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.